there's almost no limit to the surprises and delights you can encounter as an independent traveler. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. When Richard Grant was on a trek to find the source of the Nile, he took a side trip to the fabled island of Zanzibar and fell under its spell. Children cycling by with a huge fish strapped to their bicycle, and there's women walking by in these African fabrics. I would just sit there for hours just soaking it up. And even in touristy Italy, you can still find a wild region of your own in the mountains of Abruzzo. Strangely enough, just a few hours away from Rome, you could have uh, the Marzicano bear, which is also the symbol of the region. And Southeast Asia is a natural for timeless adventures. And I think everyone who goes there discovers it's a fairly extraordinary place of natural beauty, of extraordinary people, of fascinating culture. From Abruzzo to Zanzibar, and even to Vietnam, we're taking you off the beaten track in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Prepare to add some curious places to your travel bucket list in the hour ahead. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Our guests today share their fascination for destinations in Southeast Asia and in the wild spaces and untouristy towns of Italy's Abruzzo region. But first, Richard Grant returns to travel with Rick Steves to tell us what he found in Zanzibar, an island whose very name is synonymous with exotic. Richard reports on the wacky things that happened to him on his way to discovering the source of the Nile in his book called Crazy River. Richard, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Tell us just, what is Zanzibar? Well, Zanzibar, most people can't find it on a map. Everybody's heard of it, but people find it hard to point to on a map. It's an island off the east coast of Tanzania, and it's got a unique culture that's a blend of African, Indian, and Arab, and also with a dose of Shirazi from ancient Persia. It's a kind of a spice and slave and ivory trading island. Wow. And you see it all there in the streets, you know. It's uh, it's all sort of colliding and melding with each other in what, what people are wearing and the kind of food they're eating and the kind of music they're listening to. Richard, I did my uh, little study before our interview, and uh, Zanzibar, it's uh, 20 miles by 60 miles, got a million people. Its tallest point is 500 feet above sea level, 95% Muslim. Average annual income, $250 per person. People live to be about 48 years old capital cities called Zanzibar also with 200,000. Uh, would you say Stonetown would be the best base for Zanzibar? Yeah, Stonetown is, I mean, most tourists go to Zanzibar because it's got these paradise beaches up, up the east coast, sort of every tropical paradise beach cliche in place. But a lot of, uh, I, I kind of didn't really enjoy the beaches that much because there's also Italian disco resorts up and down that coast now. And, um, it's kind of like Euro trance music round the clock and bikini yoga on the beach and Italians at their espresso temples. And I had a bit of time in, in Stonetown. Yeah, Stonetown Zanzibar is this kind of labyrinthine old sort of Arab-looking city that's the capital. And, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to sit on the street there. So that's you've got that garish kind of... Uh two worlds side by side where you've got these people jetting in and, and having their beach yeah. parties. And it's, Please don't wear your Speedo to the mosque, you know. You befriended a, an old golf pro and he took you out after dark for a little taste of nightlife in Zanzibar. Yeah, I love the kind of random and unexpected in traveling. I mean, I walked into a bar on my first night in Stonetown and I, I met this golf pro. He was on the skids there. He was kind of mm. sleeping on the beach with the junkies and... He knew all the professional thieves and um, prostitutes and street hustlers. But he was wearing like an ironed golf shirt and he was wearing golf shoes and golf slacks. And uh, he spoke fluent Swahili. He was half South African and half Dutch. And he was an incomparable guide to the low life of Zanzibar. You were there to write a book, right? You must have thought, this is my man. Take me out. Yeah, I mean, uh, how could you possibly predict that happening? So what happened? What did you learn at midnight in Zanzibar with this struggling old golfer? Well, just to give you one example, you know, when somebody steals something from you in America, they generally want to not see you again. In Zanzibar, when somebody steals your phone or your camera, uh, they try and sell it back to you because they figure they'll get a better price from you than anybody else because it's got your numbers in, it's got your pictures in, so... It's just a lot of little things like that, you know. You talked about uh, a lot of scams there, and uh, how did you carry your cash when you're in a place like that? I use I use a money belt, you know. I think the best place is, is next to your skin. 
certainly never use the hotel safe in Africa. Can you leave stuff in your hotel? Not unless you're in a very expensive hotel. And beware of whores who say they don't want money. And never trust a cop. <laughs> Cops in Africa are really kind of like, uh, they're kind of like the hyenas of the city, you know. They're sort of scavengers, predators, looking for scraps of money that they can kind of uh, bully out of you a lot of the time. It sounded from your description like it's hard to meet a girl who's not a prostitute out on the streets of Zanzibar. Uh, well, yeah, it's a Muslim culture, so it's kind of the good girls are, are kept inside and, and veiled. And if you happen to be in a bar... You tend to meet the... Uh... But prostitution works differently there. It's like, it's like the girl is trying to be your girlfriend for as long as you're there because that way she'll get the most money and stuff out of you. She wants you to take her shopping and take her to Europe. and Yeah, it's not just a kind of one-time transaction thing. Are they hitting on mostly European tourists? Uh, yes. Yeah, they have the most money. Yeah, I can see it now. The distant red neon shivered in the heat. I was feeling like a stranger in a strange land. You know, where people play games with the night. God, I was too hot to sleep. Richard Grant is showing us the nightlife of spicy Zanzibar down to its steamy underside right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's turned his excursion across the wilds of East Africa into a riveting book called Crazy River. And his website includes a link to a BBC documentary film he made called American Nomads. It came from several years of travels in the American Southwest. When he's not wandering, Richard lives in Tucson. On the web, he's at richardgrant.us. Tell us what it's like to be in in one of these bars at midnight. What, What kind of characters are there? What music is playing? What's the lighting? Well, I remember this. There's, there's this one kind of nightclub bar, and it was on top of a kind of derelict hotel, and there was a kidney-shaped swimming pool that didn't have any water in it, but had just slime and beer cans. And there's bats flying overhead, kind of eating mosquitoes, and there's sort of fights breaking out, and there was a Tarab singer. Tarab is this unique Zanzibari music that's kind of a, sounds like an Indian movie soundtrack with kind of an Arabic flavor. And it's sort of a wailing, haunting music. And women who weren't prostitutes were there, dressed up to the nines, and they were all sort of dancing and swaying in front of the Tarab singer, basically drawing everyone's eyes onto themselves. They would dance up to the singer, and then when they heard a line of the song they liked, they hand a banknote to the singer, and everyone watches the woman in her finery doing this, and then the next woman comes up and takes the spotlight. Sounds like an incredible show. Yeah, no, it was amazing. Now, you wrote that you were not concerned about violent crime, really. It was just petty, you know, theft and, and scams. There's a lot of petty theft, yeah, in Zanzibar. When I got to mainland Africa, it was, it was more sort of knife crime and that kind of thing. Now, I read that 95% of the people in Zanzibar are Muslim. Do you feel like the people there are into their religion, or are they... Uh, I was there during Ramadan, which was interesting. Um, and there's also Hindus there and Christians there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we have so many misconceptions about Islam in, in America, particularly right now. I mean, it was really an education to go to an Islamic country and, and see the kind of hospitality and graciousness of Islam. How so? Give me an example. Um, people just taking you into their homes and um, introducing you to their families and doing you favors and and especially in mainland Africa, I would always try and gravitate towards the, the Muslim areas because I would get shown more hospitality there than by the Christian Africans. So you'd be invited to somebody's home. Would it be a sort of a formal dinner they would serve you, or is it just hanging out? Well, we're generally like very poor, so it would be right. uh, you know some cassava paste and maybe a bit of chicken. And they knew that being a white person, I I couldn't drink the lake water, so they would kind of scrape together their money to buy me bottled water. They wouldn't let me pay for anything. They would give me their beds. They would show me around for free. And just a real warmth and hospitality I found, particularly from Muslims there. (laughs) 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Richard Grant, and uh, Richard has come back from quite an adventure. He's written about it vividly in his book, Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa. Richard, like many people listening, I'm just fantasizing about a way to go to Africa and the best way to go to Africa. Take me onto a, a street that you found particularly evocative in Stonetown and, and take me to Zanzibar there. Well, there's a, there's a place called Jaws Corner, and it's right in the heart of the labyrinth of Stonetown. And it's kind of uh, children cycling by with a huge fish strapped to their bicycle. And as you buy your coffee from a guy that makes it on a charcoal brazier, and he kind of clinks together his tiny cups to attract custom. There's a lot of jostling and barging and uh, women walking by in these African fabrics uh, or covered up in, in Muslim veils and people peeling oranges to release the scent. And basically all of it would be illegal in America. There would be health codes. There would be, you know, you can't sell those pirated DVDs here. You know, the hygiene codes and none of that exists. And it's just... Um, yeah, the smells and the sights, I would just sit there for hours just uh, soaking it up. It sounds like a poetic barrage on all your senses. And it, it reminds me of sort of a, a lightness of backpacking and aimless kind of wandering that a lot of younger travelers have. And I don't think there's any age requirement for that kind of simple joy of travel. Yeah, I think it's a fine activity and to, to be encouraged. And I think your book is an inspiration to do just that. Richard, when I do get to Zanzibar, what are a couple of good Swahili phrases I should have in my arsenal to communicate? Uh, hakuna matata. No problem. Hakuna matata. There's also a, a bank is a benki. A benki? And a roundabout is a kipi lefty. Ah, a kipi lefty. I like no problem. What's no problem again? Hakuna matata. Hakuna matata. And I suppose when you're traveling in Tanzania and Zanzibar, that's a good word to know. Yeah, it serves as goodbye sometimes, too. Richard Grant, author of Crazy River, Exploration and Folly in East Africa. Thanks so much for bringing a little bit of uh, Zanzibar into our lives. All right, Rick. Hope you make it there. Okay. Hakuna Matata. Thanks, Rick. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. Ma che dolce poesia. Hakuna Matata. Tutta frenesia. Senza pensieri. Next, local guide Virginia Augustinelli tells us about the wild region she comes from in the middle of Italy. An insider's guide to Abruzzo is next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. I think we've spent more time on travel with Rick Steves talking about Italy than any other country. And for good reason. And there's still plenty of Italy yet to explore. Joining us right now to introduce us to her home region in the center of that exciting country is Virginia Agostinelli. She lives in Abruzzo. It's a region known for its wilderness, its national parks, complete with eagles, bears, and even wild pigs. 
The mountains are rugged, with small medieval towns and barely a hint of tourism. Not far to the east are the beaches and port towns of the Adriatic, and it all starts just an hour or so east of Rome. Virginia, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me here. Tell us about Abruzzo. Abruzzo is um, a small region in the heart of Italy, really, but it's a really particular region in the sense that geographically it's in the center. Uh, But it is historically always been associated with the south. As a matter of fact, I would always say I'm from the south. Really? Because it's just, it really is the middle. You don't, do you think of Rome as the south? No, not at all. No, because Abruzzo was always part of the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Okay, so it was connected politically and economically to the south. So culturally, historically, it's always been associated with the south. The kingdom of the church would uh, kind of cut north of Abruzzo. So Ah, so you were in the uh, kingdom of the two Sicilies. Two Sicilies. Under Spanish domain and sometimes under French. So you had that colonial heritage, which means really you were taken advantage of economically by a colonial power. Yes. In fact, uh, also in the dialects that are spoken in the region, there is a lot of influence from Spanish and from Mm. French. Uh, For instance, uh, in the dialect of my village, the word to say street, it's ruelle from the French. Okay. So because of your colonial heritage and your Kingdom of Two Sicilies was a colonial uh, possession of Spain and France? Mm -hmm. Sometimes by France, but mostly under Spanish dominion. Back and forth, Spain and France. And a lot of us go to the rich cities of Italy because we find the rich art and the rich buildings and the rich culture. Florence, Rome, Milano, Venice. Mm -hmm. I look at the map of Abruzzo and I don't recognize any of these cities. It's a... It's under the radar. (laughs) There are a lot of uh, very small villages, and uh, the largest city in Abruzzo is actually Pescara, which is uh, on the coast, Adriatic coast, and it's a very uh, strange city, very different from Florence or from Venice in the sense that uh, it developed during the 20th century. It used to be a small village of uh, fishermen. So the main city there has a short history compared to Florence. Yes, and it reflects on the architecture, which is very modern. If I want to drive from Rome directly Mm -hmm. east to get to Pescara, how many hours would that take on the autostrada? The highway, it's exactly that one, Rome to Pescara. Uh, It's maybe three hours uh, hours. with the highway. Okay, and then Pescara has boats going from there to Croatia Croatia and so on. I'm speaking with Virginia Agostinelli. We're talking about a mysterious part of Italy called Abruzzo. It has 150 miles of coastline. Is it popular for people to go to the beach? And what would you do on the beach? Um, What I prefer particularly is the southern part of the region for the beach. But uh, there are also a lot of mountains. So that's the great part of the region, the great uh, part of Abruzzo, that you can be on the beach and one hour you can be hiking in the mountains or in Gran Sasso. Is there skiing? Yes, a lot. In fact, there is Roccaraso, which is a very famous uh, ski resort. And there is Campo Imperatore, close to L'Aquila. Are these serious ski slopes or just kind of for beginners and people who want to be serious go to the Dolomite? The two that I mentioned are very serious. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go to the Dolomites to have serious skiing. No, not at all. What about the, I've heard of these natural parks where you've got lots Mm -hmm. of um, wildlife. A lot of people refer to Abruzzo as the green heart of Europe just because there are... uh, a lot of national and regional parks. The most famous are the Parco Nazionale d'Abruzzo, the National Park of Abruzzo. Uh, then there is the National Park of the Gran Sasso, close to L'Aquila. Uh, Gran Sasso is also the highest peak on the Apennine. The Apennines are the, sort of the spine of Italy, the mountains that run yes. up and down the Italian peninsula. I think of Italy as so densely populated and so urban, but here we have natural parks, we have wild countryside, Mm -hmm. and even wild animals? Absolutely. What animals uh, would I see in Abruzzo? um, Strangely enough, uh, just a few hours away from Rome, you could have uh, the Marsicano bear, which is also the symbol of the region. Wild bears in Italy? Mm -hmm. Today? Yes. Is it dangerous? (laughs) I've never met one, and I always uh, imagine that he must be very lonely. (laughs) (laughs) And what other kind of animals? Uh, A lot of uh, deer and uh, wild boar, foxes. Now, wild boar, it shows on the menu in the restaurant. There are a lot of wild boars. In fact, there are too many. So 
if you do hit one with the car, you just have to call the national park and let them know. But you could keep it. And you, you can could, keep it. Yes. So you hit, oops. <laughs> you sorry about that. Dinner time. <laughs> yes. Wild boar. How do you yeah. say that in Italian? Cinghiale. Cinghiale. Because mm-hmm. you see in a lot of restaurants the, mm-hmm. the head of a boar on the wall. Yeah, I think when they first uh, started repopulating the area, they didn't calculate correctly how fast and how many wild boar would... Uh, uh, okay, so there's there's no shortage of wild boar. No, not at all. Was there a big earthquake in Abruzzo recently? Yes, uh, well, in 09, in April 2009. In fact, that was uh, in L'Aquila, and right. my, my village is in the province of L'Aquila. Uh, it was uh, quite strong, and uh, it pretty much destroyed the city. Uh, which was in ruins. How has the recovery been? At the beginning, it seemed to be very quick. But I was there just uh, one year ago, and I hear from my friend that live in L'Aquila that it's exactly as it was the following day. So there's been little change then? It's very a, it's little, slow. yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Abruzzo, uncrowded Italy, and we're joined by Virginia Agustinelli. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Renee's calling in from New Westminster, British Columbia. Renee, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. How are you? We're doing well. Do you have a thought about Abruzzo for Virginia? Well, you know, we go to Italy quite often. And my husband, Barry, he loves Italy. And he every time we go, he says, you know, we really have to drive over on the coast and just drive down. And I keep thinking, well, gee whiz, is there really good roads? Can we do that? And then we met some very nice Italian people, and oh, they were telling us how beautiful it, it is, and a lot of camping along the beaches, and just wonderful. So, Virginia, could Renee drive and explore the coastline without yes, any yes. problem? Yes, yes. In fact, you could take the highway, which is uh, very convenient and very efficient, but there are also other small roads that you can take, so you can have a better view at uh, the sea, their panorama, and... I always, uh, when I travel north to visit my sister that lives in northern Italy, I travel by train because Mm. the railway, it's just beautiful on the Adriatic. It's very close to the water. If Renee wanted to stay in an agriturismo, is that a possibility in Abruzzo? It is, it is. There are not as many as in uh, Tuscany, but uh, there are a few. For instance, uh, in the region of Sulmona, which is in the center of Abruzzo, there are a lot of little villages all around the valley, and you could find uh, several uh, good agriturismos, very tiny. So these agriturismos are traditional family farms that are allowing guests to come in like bed and breakfast. To help stay in business because all over the world, small farms are having a tough time so they can supplement their family interests. So Renee could just stop into a agriturismo and have a good chance to enjoy the local food and meet some local farm family. Yes, in fact, from the coast, if you want to go to Sulmona, the place that I mentioned, it's just about one hour away, one hour uh, west. Renee, thanks for your call and happy travels. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Abruzzo, uncrowded Italy. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Heather in Toland, Connecticut, emailed us. She writes, my family's saving up for a two-month stay in Italy, and we'd love to hunker down in one location and tour the area. Abruzzo sounds perfect for all the exploring and, uh, that we envision doing. We'd love to stay on a farm, help out, and then stretch our legs by exploring local hiking, beaches, eating local cuisine, and so on. How would we find a place for an extended stay? And what would the best way to get around to be? Virginia, if these people want to have a, a two-month stay and, and sort of settle in, mm-hmm. how would they do that in a, in Abruzzo? <laughs> and then how would they get around? Well, I think in Abruzzo would be the perfect place for uh, what she mentioned. There is a lot of uh, mountain biking uh, tracks and uh, also road bike, if you like. There is a beautiful street that goes up to Scanno, which is this tiny little village in the center of Abruzzo. And it has a very dramatic view of the mountains. Scanno, how do you spell that? S-C-A-N-N-O. S-C-A-N-N-O. Okay, so that's a nice village, and you can do some mountain biking around there. Yes, you could also road bike there, and there is a beautiful natural lake. And uh, Scanno is also uh, famous because the ex-president of Italy, Ciampi, used to hide in Scanno when he was a partisan during the war. Oh, because that was just remote and hidden away up in the mountains. Which now, is, a partisan would be a communist fighting the fascist Mussolini, is that right? Uh, yes and no, not necessarily. The partisans were a, a guerrilla army uh, strongly financed by the Allies. To fight Mussolini? Yes. Who yes. was the fascist leader? Yes. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. 
And Dale's on the line in Blacklick, Ohio. Dale, thanks for your call. Thank you. My wife's grandparents uh, were natives of Abruzzo, specifically Ona, a small town outside L'Aquila. They came over through Ellis Island, and we were privileged in 1996 to go over and visit some of uh, the relatives. And we stayed in L'Aquila, right in a hotel on the square there, and went to Ona, the little village, and, and just really enjoyed that area. And we're just wondering, if we go back, what would be a good central place, Virginia, to, to stay, to enjoy the culture and the environment around the fruit so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Anna very well. It's uh, very close to L'Aquila. And, uh, well, Pacentro is my village. It's about one hour away from Anna. Uh, it's a very tiny village with a beautiful medieval castle, about 800 people. And uh, it is close to a larger bigger city, which is Sulmona, 30,000 people. And that would be, to me, an ideal uh, so this place is to pa- stay. Pacentro, Pacentro. P-A-C-E-N-T-R-O. Pacentro. Okay. Yes. And there are uh, several agriturismos. It's very affordable and very beautiful. And there's one restaurant in particular, which is uh, one of the best restaurants of Italy in uh, such a small village. And it is quite worth it to give it a try. Okay. Now, Dale, you visited before the earthquake. The earthquake hit in... In Onine. 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 And how has the earthquake affected Ona, and what is it like today, it, do you know? It, it did. It did affect Ona. In fact, I think Ona was one of the uh, villages that was affected the most by the earthquake, yes. My wife lost a relative over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I heard a lot but about uh, Ona during are the... They, are they rebuilding Virginia? Well, um, there there was a lot of uh, financial support, but uh, because of bureaucracy, little of that support actually ended up where it was supposed to, to be. And uh, the reconstruction, it's still very, very slow. Actually, I drove through L'Aquila just about a year ago, and it still seemed as if they didn't do much. So it's just like time has stopped there from a yes. reconstruction point yeah, of view. Unfortunately, yes. The fountains are so beautiful in L'Aquila. Mm-hmm, true, true. It's also called the city of the, the 99 <laughs> fountains. 99 fountains. Virginia, if Dale was going back to his uh, family's homeland and he wanted to enjoy the cuisine of the region, mm-hmm. I know the pasta, the saffron, the confetti, the sugared almonds. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yes, Abruzzo is very famous for uh, pasta. In fact, the, the Checo pasta, the kind of blue and yellow package that I'm sure everybody has seen is from Abruzzo. Okay. Uh, there is a small village that's called the Fara San Martino where uh, apparently the water is particularly good because pasta is really just flour and water. So, so if it's, it's the not water. the flour, it must be so the some water. Some beer makers say it's the water <laughs> and for a pasta maker it can be the water. It can be the water. And what about the saffron? The saffron, uh, there is a saffron from Navelli, uh, which is uh, a plateau close to L'Aquila, up in the mountain. It's a very rare quality of saffron, very rich, very different from the Spanish saffron, very intense, and it's used a lot in the cuisine of Milan for the risotto alla milanese. Oh, so they import their saffron from Abruzzo? Mm -hmm. Yes, Way up in Milano, in the north? Yes, in the north, in Lombardy. And then the sugar almond cookies? The sugar almond cookies are called confetti. And it's this uh, special cookie that is used for occasions such as weddings or special celebrations. And again, the preparation is very simple. It's just sugar and almond, but yet they are delicious. (laughs) Dale, I hope that gives you some ideas. I hope you can go back and visit. Can I ask one more quick question? Sure. Um, Medieval fortifications and relics and castles, would we be able to experience that historical uh, aspect? There are plenties. So pretty much every village has a castle. In fact, the village that I mentioned earlier, Pacentro, has a gorgeous castle from the 12th century that is still almost intact. At least the main tower, it's almost intact. We will put these details, by the way, in the radio section at ricksteves.com so our listeners can get the spelling of these beautiful places that Virginia is talking about. Dale, thanks for your call, and, okay. and this is quite inspirational. It makes me really want to go explore Abruzzo. Thank you very much both of you. Take care. Bye now. So I didn't know Abruzzo was famous for its pasta. What else is Abruzzo Mm -hmm. famous for? Well, the confetti and also the particular dish is the pecora al cotturo. Because there are a lot of mountains, so there used to be a lot of shepherds. And this cotturo, it's a specific uh, cooking pot that the shepherd, uh, it's, it's large enough for one sheep. 
So it's very simple. A cooking simple. pot for one sheep. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like a, a feast for the whole village. It is. But the, the shepherd would get a sheep, butcher it, put it in this cotturo, in this uh, pot, and then they would eat it with the other shepherds in the area for one day, two days, it depends. It's a very simple, simple dish, simple preparation, poor dish, but it takes forever to prepare because the sheep, it has a lot of fat, so it has to boil in water for maybe eight hours, nine hours, so that it cleans it up a little bit. Oh, yeah. You want to do that when you're eating a whole sheep. (laughs) And then when you think about Abruzzo, it just seems like uh, rough and tumble, almost like the Wild West. In fact, uh, a lot of uh, scenes from the Spaghetti Western were shot uh, there just because there were a lot of mountains, a lot of space. It was cheaper, of course, and it was close to Rome. What's your favorite Spaghetti Western? Well, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring Abruzzo, learning a lot. It's just two hours from Rome. Thank you, Virginia Agostinelli. If we're going to finish with some image of Abruzzo, where would you take me? What would we see? What would we eat? What would we smell? There is a, a mountain that it's called the Maiella. It always gives me this sense of peace when it has the snow and it's so calm. It looks like a giant that just it's just laying there and uh, resting for who knows how long, for the eternity. A sleeping giant. What is the name? Maiella. M-A-J-E-L-L-A. And you would travel there and you would look out and you would see your state of Abruzzo. Yes. So you're standing on this beautiful place surrounded by Abruzzo. Mm -hmm. Tell me something that would touch the soul of an Abruzzo person that would think or say when they're at this place. Abruzzo people are very simple in the sense that uh, they're very modest, very humble. In fact, uh, we say in Italy that people of Abruzzo have a nature that is strong and gentle. Strong and gentle. There was this lady that I saw on TV that was rescued during the earthquake. In fact, she was 98, and she stayed in her house for about 30 hours or so. And I remember her on TV where the journalist asked her, so what did you do? Uh, Did you pray? Were you praying? And she just looked at the journalist as if he were crazy, and she said, what did I do? I was knitting. I was working, of course. What else could I have been doing? So she was knitting. She was 98 year old and she was just, she couldn't (laughs) move. She she, was doing her work as the whole world was falling around her. And she answered as if it was the most natural thing that she would have been doing there. 98 98. years old. And that's the soul to me of the Abruzzo person. Strong and gentle. Forte e gentile. Di Abruzzi. Si. (laughs) Virginia Agostinelli, mille grazie. Grazie a te. Sono venuto ad amare e di nascosto a danzare. Once Julian Brown set foot in Vietnam, he knew he'd be back again and again. Julian recommends places to immerse yourself in the cultures of Southeast Asia, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our next guide works much of the year from his home base in Paris, taking American visitors around France. But he's also discovered the magnetic appeal of the cities and countryside of the former French colonies of Indochina, what we call today Southeast Asia. And more American travelers are discovering what the region has to offer, since the sting of the Vietnam War now is more than a generation behind us. Julian Brown joins us next for an overview from Vietnam to Cambodia and Laos. Plus, Julian talks about using nearby Thailand as a base, and what you'll find in Burma now that the tourism boycott has been lifted. Julian, thanks for joining us. Pleased to be here. So, I know you're passionate about guiding people around France. How did you get hooked on Southeast Asia? I suppose really by accident. I went, it'll sound strange, but I went to Vietnam by accident in the early 90s and have never looked back, been going there ever since. Well, what are the highlights for travelers in Southeast Asia? I mean, you think about the, you know, the marquee sites, the, the temples and so on, but uh, what really grabs you when you're in Southeast Asia? I think perhaps first and foremost, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the colors, the people, the bustling markets, the street life, as well, of course, as the the great temple sites you talked about. It's a fantasy land for a traveler, really. Yeah, I agree. I think for a traveler from America or from Europe, it is a fantasy land in many ways that everything is different. It's, again, the colors, the sights, the sounds, the smells. Now, if you think about Southeast Asia, 
is it cohesive in a way? I mean, are there strands that tie it all together? How, how diverse is it? I mean, if you understand Burma, does that mean you understand Thailand? Um, yes and no. You say, is it cohesive? It's a question that's been debated in academic circles for years. Southeast Asia is a construct. I believe historically it was a Second World War construct in terms of military operations. That part of Asia needed to have a label set, so was labeled Southeast Asia. Hmm. Ever since people have argued about its cohesion or not, at one time Bangladesh was included in Southeast Asia. I believe a country like Sri Lanka should be included in Southeast Asia, not geographically, but because of the influence these countries have. So are they cohesive? They have certain things in common, but never all of them. Most of Southeast Asia was colonized, not all. Thailand was never colonized. Most of Southeast Asia has had a strong Indian influence, where Indian languages and cultures, ancient languages and cultures and religions have come in from the south. You have Hinduism in parts of Southeast Asia, historically, really? historically and today. Yeah. Vietnam is an exception. Vietnam is the part of Southeast Asia that had a Chinese influence. The Chinese influence came down from the north. So hence the huh, French right. colonial name was Indochina, the land that was halfway between India and uh. China. Now, you said Sri Lanka should be, in some ways, considered part of Southeast Asia. Geographically, it just fell off the bottom of India. Is that because there's a lot of Buddhism in Sri Lanka? Exactly. Buddhism died out in India very early on, and Sri Lanka was, in a way, a filter where Buddhism came from India into Sri Lanka and traveled there by sea routes to Southeast Asia. It seems to me, it's from a tourism point of view, it's evolving. I mean, back in the 80s, my impression was Thailand was the great place. In the 90s, Vietnam became kind of the new Thailand. In, in the last decade, Cambodia, now even Burma, getting more tourism. How do you see tourism evolving and changing uh, in Southeast Asia? Enormously. I think you put them in the right order, that Thailand was the backpacker's paradise in the 70s and 80s. Then, as you say, people started. The intrepid travelers began to enter into Vietnam, I think, at the very end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, as the country began to open up. The opening up of Cambodia came after the Khmer Rouge and the Troubles later on. And then Sim Rip, which is the frontier town close to the Angkor Temple complex, has exploded in the last 10 years, huh. especially when direct flights opened directly into Sim Rip from abroad before you had to go by Phnom Penh. So Cambodia has seen an explosion of tourism, but in certain locations. What do you predict now? What is unfolding now? That process is continuing in Vietnam and Cambodia and to a certain extent in Laos, where the opening up came a little bit later. And now in Burma, we've seen extraordinary political things happening. In the past, I know people were almost boycotting Burma because they didn't want to support the, the military regime there. Is there any political incorrectness for people helping the Myanmar or Burmese economy by going there as tourists? Yes and no. People were not almost boycotting. A lot of people were boycotting. Right. Um, because Aung San Suu Kyi had asked people not to visit Myanmar. That boycott is now being lifted, and it seems it's a better thing to travel to Myanmar. Having said that, anyone who travels to a country with a complicated regime is somehow financing that regime. You have to struggle with that in your own mind, because in some ways you're helping a bad regime economically. On the other hand, you're making connections to the free world, and that's quite valuable even if you're stoking the economy of a bad regime. Absolutely. And in terms of bad regimes or regimes we don't like, if I refuse to travel to any country I don't like, I wouldn't go to many countries in the world, probably, in terms of regimes. Myanmar, sadly, has a particularly bad regime, but it seems to be very, very slowly at the beginnings of opening up. I say that tentatively. So as a tour guide, you take groups from Europe to Southeast Asia. How do you try to shape your impact so it's more positive and less negative? That's a very interesting question. I tend to let the tourists themselves do it. I don't want to influence them. We discuss a lot questions of where they should be spending their money, whether it's possible to frequent local stores, local people, to avoid government-run hotels, for instance. There are very difficult questions about how much money we should pay to children on the streets, to beggars, whether we should fund organizations. So very often I have groups who will want to give a donation to a hospital, visit a hospital or to an orphanage. Right. Fund physically money rather than handing it out in the street to fund it to organizations who will use it. As a tour guide and a teacher and a leader of travelers, that seems to be a very positive thing. It's just 
let these little children on the street pull your heartstrings and mm-hmm. collect that compassion and that concern, but then channel it into something that might be a little more constructive. I think so. I prefer channeling through something constructive. Having right. said that, in the back of my mind, I know that if we give a dollar to someone who has nothing, makes a huge an, difference. it makes a that's huge a, difference. That's a day's wages for his dad, probably. I tend to think, yes, that's the problem. If you give it to a tiny child, the dad may think, well, I'm not going to work anymore. Let the child go and get money off these dumb tourists. So it's, th- these are very difficult questions. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Southeast Asia with Julian Brown. Julian, a lot of Americans really have a tough time getting comfortable with the war-torn part of the globe after the war is over. And there's a lot of very difficult and bloody recent history in Southeast Asia. What are the scars of the killing fields of the Vietnam War, the image that local people would have of Americans and so on, that an American dreaming about going to Southeast Asia should be mindful of? I want to say the scars now are almost tourist scars, superficial scars. I first went to Vietnam in the very early 90s, and when I returned to Europe, everyone said, what was it like? And I knew their question was about the war. That was all the outside world knew about the war. And I had to point out that war had ended. The Vietnam War. Yes, the Vietnam War, which, of course, in Vietnam is called the American War, because they can't call it the Vietnam War. So that (laughs) surprises people. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. But that war had ended a decade and a half earlier. The scars have gone, and I think Southeast Asia, the people of Southeast Asia have an incredible talent to get up and move on. And in Vietnam, it took some time. It was a very difficult period immediately after the end of the war. But very quickly from the 90s onwards, they got up and carried on with their lives, and the war was a piece of history. So when did the Vietnam War finally finish? April 1975. 1975. So it's been a generation now. Yeah. Half of the people in Vietnam have no living memory of the Vietnam War. It has a very large young population, so most of them weren't even born. What, What sort of residual effect is there for Americans walking through the streets of Hanoi? Almost none in the streets of Hanoi. Almost none. The traces of the war in Vietnam are now in many, many war cemeteries all around the country. Right. But they aren't necessarily visited by tourists. Some war museums and then certain places that have been preserved or reconstructed to represent the war, in particular the tunnels, the Coochie tunnels outside Saigon. So there's sites in Vietnam that are the American war sites. They are now tourist attractions. Tourist attractions. Exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, We're speaking with Julian Brown about Southeast Asia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Esther's on the line in Chicago. Esther, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick, for this opportunity to ask a question. Um, I've had the pleasure of traveling in Vietnam. I enjoyed it very much. I'd like to return and visit the Sapa region in northern Vietnam because I enjoy visiting the tribal areas and visiting with minority groups and, and their markets. So my question is, what's a good time of the year to go to northern Vietnam? And also, how long would you recommend to stay in the area to to really enjoy it? Hi, Esther. What a great question. And can I congratulate you on your good taste for liking Vietnam? And I really want to say, how long should you stay there? Go and stay a lifetime there. Um, No, seriously, the best time for visiting northern Vietnam is generally thought to be in our winter, so November or December. Having said that, there never is an ideal time. The weather can be perfect that time of year. Coming into December and early January, Hanoi can have a very, very light, cold rain all day long. And when you travel up to Sapa, it's almost impossible to predict what the weather will be like because you're going so high. So in terms of the length of time you asked about, I would suggest give yourself a minimum of three days in Sapa. I have been there and discovered fog so thick I couldn't see my hands in front of me. And I had to wait 24 hours for the weather to clear. So in order not to have disappointment, give yourself enough days that if the weather is bad, you can sit by a log fire and wait. So do you feel three days would be enough to do a little bit of hiking, visiting the markets, visiting the, the different minority villages? I think three days would be a good length of time, yeah, especially okay. if you're on a short trip. So we're talking about Sapa, S-A-P-A, that's a region? It's a French colonial hill town up in the mountains in northern Vietnam, near the border with China. And from Hanoi, you would go north? How how far and how would you get up there? Most people now do it by bus or train. There is a special train that goes from Hanoi, a night train, so you can sleep on the train. So it's an all-night train journey, and then you have a bus journey when you go off the train. So it's about a 10-hour journey north of, of Hanoi? Something like that, yeah, perhaps a little bit more than that. But that's where you would complement the big city and the, the sort of classic countryside 
uh, yes. experience. And as Esther rightly points out, it's a place where people go to see the different ethnic minorities who live in the mm-hmm. mountains. It's like when people go to Chiang Mai in the north of exactly. Thailand. Exactly. So, so if you exactly. enjoyed Chiang Mai and that whole dimension of Thailand, you'd want to go to the north hill, hill yes. towns of Vietnam. Yeah. Esther, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. And when we think about Vietnam, Hanoi comes to mind. What is it, four million people in Hanoi? Oof, I think four million in the center of Hanoi. It's probably wow. three times as much if we take the greater Hanoi. Does it Hanoi, feel so. that way, or, or is, is it kind of overwhelming? Or what, what does it feel I like I think it feels that way in every street in Hanoi, especially in the old quarter. I think most people who go there for the first time are overwhelmed by the number of motorbikes, the sheer numbers of people in the streets. Do you enjoy Hanoi? I love Hanoi. Why? Take, knew, us, take us on knew, a walk down the street. I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> Why do I love Hanoi? It's, it's, I live in France, as you said, and I think Hanoi is a combination of Paris and Aix-en-Provence. And for people who don't know Aix-en-Provence, it's a beautiful, leafy town down in the south of France. Hanoi is an enormous city with all these millions of people. It's got lakes it's and tree-lined streets and it parks has. and tree-lined colonial streets field. everywhere, colonial buildings. It has an extraordinary old quarter called the 36th Street Quarter, which is the old merchant's quarter of tiny streets. Traditionally, each one had its own profession. Was so, it destroyed in the war and rebuilt like a lot of cities in, in Europe? No, it survived. The old quarter survived reasonably mm. well. What was destroyed in the French period was the walls. It used to be a walled town. Now okay. only one gate remains. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julian Brown about exploring Southeast Asia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Gus is calling us from Nashville, Tennessee. Gus, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for taking it. I wanted to ask uh, what we should see in uh, Phuket. Phuket. We've been to James Bond Island. In fact, we've we've been in Southeast Asia more than once, so we know a little bit about it, but from a cruise ship. And I, I'm still on a cruise ship. Just wondering if there's anything uh, in Phuket that I needed to see. Hi, Gus. Well, if you've seen James Bond Island, then you have an idea of the, the physical, natural beauty of that area. Yes. Phuket is a tourist island, as I'm sure you know, that has fabulous beaches. It has tourist towns where there's nightlife galore, where you can go from a beer bar to an international cabaret like a Las Vegas cabaret. Uh You can, if you're on your cruise ship, you could get off and go on a classic elephant ride, but you may have already done that. You can go and see temples, go to the old town of Phuket and see old colonial architecture. Okay. So there's a mixture of things you can do. You probably won't have that much time if you're on a cruise ship. No. Or you might just want to enjoy one of the fabulous beaches on Phuket. But I I enjoyed your uh, comments about Vietnam. Halong Bay was the most beautiful place I've seen. I was very surprised. I want to talk about Halong Bay because I hear so much about that. Julian, tell us about this. uh, What what is it, like 3,000 islands? Yeah, I've never counted them, but it's a lot of islands. It's an extraordinary bay with limestone rock formations that come out. And you can take boats and go in amongst these extraordinary limestone formations. Many people know it from the famous French film Andochine that came out with Catherine Deneuve in the early 1990s, which was probably one of the best travelogues Vietnam had ever seen. And it's, it's a World Heritage Site. It's classified by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site. I was reading that Ho Chi Minh appreciated it. He said in his linguistic flair, the wonder one cannot impart to others. I guess it's you got to see it to believe it, huh? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. It just sounds like it's this sort of utopian mix of jungle and, and exotic beaches and coral reefs and almost no human impact as it, it survives quite well to this that, day. That's correct, and mm. a beautiful cave there, too. Mm-hmm. All right. Gorgeous caves. Well, Gus, thanks for your call and happy travels. All right, thank you. Goodbye. We'll wrap things up just with a real quick review. I mean, we've got like five countries in Southeast Asia. I know this is ridiculous, but give us just a little, in a few sentences, a thumbnail swing through each country, how it distinguishes itself from the others. Thailand? Thailand, I suppose, is the country in Southeast Asia that opened up to tourists earliest, so it has a very organized tourist structure. Most people fly to Southeast Asia via Bangkok Airport. That'd so be the, the, the starting point for a Southeast Asian It's trip. the starting point and the stopping off point for lots of people in uh, Southeast Asia. What about Laos? We didn't talk about Laos much. Laos is perhaps the country, along with Myanmar and mainland Southeast Asia, which is the least opened up to tourism. And so it's a beautiful, very laid back. So if you want to be an adventure and get there before the crowds do, Myanmar or Burma and Laos would be the places to go? Probably now in Southeast Asia, yes. Yeah. Cambodia? Cambodia has opened up enormously since the end of the Troubles in the Khmer Rouge, and 
receives millions of visitors because of the great Angkor Wat temple complex. And then what about Vietnam? Vietnam has always been my favorite country in Southeast Asia, and it's an extraordinary country. The whole of the world thinks of Vietnam as a war. People say, what did you do after Vietnam, as if it's not even a place? And I think everyone who goes there discovers it's a fairly extraordinary place of natural beauty, of extraordinary people, of fascinating culture, a mixture of China from the north and Southeast Asia from the south. Now, if you were to gather one image and share it with us on on how Southeast Asia really is, take us there just to wrap up this interview. I think I'd go back to Halong Bay we were talking about earlier and imagine sitting at sunset on a boat in the middle of the most extraordinary natural landscape imaginable, eating fabulous fresh-caught seafood. Nice. What could be better than that? I don't know. Julian Brown, thanks so much for giving us an insight into Southeast Asia. Thank you so much for having me. E gentile. Wait, did you hear that? Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Jim Richards at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and to Robin Cronin, Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, and Chris Luzik for technical help. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including links to our guests, and a phone app with interviews from the show and guided walking tours by Rick to many of Europe's most popular sites. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package at ricksteves.com and join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.